What's up, everybody? Hey, everybody. everybody. Do we have everybody on? Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, hi. I had a really big presentation. Uh, there was like senior management and C-levers. Everyone was there to listen to me, to the results or outcomes of my work. This is Veronica. She'd been at the company in this story for a while, and she felt like she was doing a good job. But at the same time, she was a bit pissed off about how things were going. That morning, she told her manager in a one-to-one that she felt disconnected from her team and not listened to. Still, in the end, the big presentation seemed to go well, until she got a call from her boss. Afterwards, my boss called me like several hours later that he got like really bad feedback on my work. But it was not about the content of my work, but about my tone of voice, how I presented the outcomes. And I received this negative feedback and I looked at him and I was like, I was telling you that I'm frustrated. I was telling you what is wrong and this was the peak. And this never happens to me. I started to cry. I even took a picture of that. <laughs> I found it yesterday on my computer. And I said to myself, like, hey, something went wrong. You are crying. You are crying at work. What went wrong? A few weeks passed. Veronica started working on different projects. And she was getting good feedback. Veronica's used to being a high achiever. Her friends describe her as a warrior, someone who's properly dedicated to making an impact and achieving her goals. Then she had another one-to-one meeting with her boss. He was still thinking about the presentation. I felt like he was still referring to this moment, but we didn't do like feedback or anything. Veronica was annoyed. Instead of giving her constructive feedback and talking about how things could improve, he just kept going on about how bad the presentation went. I just look at him and I feel like this is really unfair. It's unfair that you are still referring to some like weak moments. And in like several months, this was like the only bad situation where I was given some negative feedback. And I felt like it was unfair. Veronica felt herself welling up again. She couldn't hide it. Even via Zoom her boss could see what was happening. He looked at me and he told me like, I think you need a professional help and I think you are too emotional and unstable. And I looked at him and at that moment I started to cry because I felt like I failed as a professional and I didn't do a good job and it meant a lot for me. Picture the scene. Veronica's sat on Zoom in tears while her boss looks on, stony-faced. The only way he's acknowledged the situation so far is by telling her she needs professional help. If anything, he should adjust his own tone of voice at this point. But he's unfazed. In fact, he keeps going. I felt like he's ignoring that I'm crying and I just texted him on Zoom chat that hey, I'm sorry, I cannot continue with this meeting. Maybe we continue tomorrow. They just like started to talk and talk and I was just not able to say anything. Because I haven't expected that, you know, it it came as a surprise. Would you describe yourself as someone who cries often? I was actually thinking about that because um, I'm absolutely not the person who, I'm, I'm, I'm not crying. When I told my friends that I cried at work, 
they were like, what? Are you kidding me? No way. You were crying at work. And it was even more surprising for me that it happened because I just like didn't understand what happened. <laughs> I'm just crying when someone really close died or I'm not crying. I really don't. I've interviewed at least a dozen people about their crying at work stories. And Veronica's experience has a lot of the classic elements. An intense one-to-one meeting with a manager. Harsh feedback. Unfair gender dynamics with sexist overtones. We'll be talking more about all of that later in the episode. But that last part surprised me. Veronica isn't a crier. Other than serious bereavements, this was the first time Veronica had cried in ages. And of all places, it was at work on a call to her boss. If you wrote down the top 10 situations you'd least like to cry in, that'd probably be pretty high up the list. So how come workplaces have this unique power to make us cry? What does it mean to cry at work for women versus men? How should our colleagues react? And once the tears have been wiped away, where do we go from there? We'll be diving into these questions and more in this podcast about crying at work. A mental health at work special brought to you by Oliva. Proper mental health support and emotional growth for every single employee. Do you think anything positive came out of this experience for you? Yes, I love the company. just that I care less about doing it. Lindsay's chief of staff at a venture capital firm. In the past, she also worked in marketing and was even a professional cyclist for a bit. But unlike Michaela, crying is pretty normal for Lindsay. Yeah, I cry often. I cry if I get really angry or frustrated. My desire is to just get over things efficiently. So if having a cry is the fastest way to just process something and move on, then I really see no point in resisting it. Lindsay's comfortable with crying in a lot of situations, like after a big setback in cycling training, or on a plane when her toddler's acting up. But even for a frequent crier like Lindsay, crying at work feels weird. Yeah, I'd say it's definitely different. It's like eating dessert before dinner. It's not any different than eating it after, but it feels different, like you're doing something bad or out of order or something. Still, her approach to crying seems unusually calm and pragmatic. Crying is so natural for Lindsay that she'd actually prefer it if people just acted like nothing was happening. My strategy, as it relates to at least crying in like the workplace, is to say preemptively, this is how I handle things. So if I start crying, just ignore it. Let's just continue like the conversation or whatever needs to be done. <laughs> uh, generally in the workplace, I've been working with... It tends to be older and more experienced men. So... I think the whole thing makes them uncomfortable and they just, they do what I say, which is ignore it. Because I think it's probably more that they feel like, oh God, deer in the headlights, like this person is crying. Uh, 
but it has the effect that I want, which is let's just pretend it's not happening and I'll get over it and move on. You have a very athletic approach to crying. I've never heard someone talk about it before in terms of like efficiency. Well, it's like if something upsetting happens, like truly upsetting, and then I stifle it and suppress it and keep trying to move forward, it doesn't go away. Like I remain upset in the background or more prone to being upset about other unrelated things. It's like if you have food poisoning and you have to throw it all up and then it's gone and you're just empty and done and you're like, all right, that was terrible, but now I can move on. (laughs) For Lindsay then, crying at work isn't something that we should avoid. If anything, it's a shortcut to process negative emotions, sort of like a superpower. But she didn't always think this way. Like every superpower, Lindsay's has an origin story. When I was particularly young and new in the workplace, I was probably 21. The two co-founders of the company, we were in the conference room and they gave me some hard to hear feedback and I was trying very hard not to cry. And I was also upset and defensive because I was young and knew everything. So of course, (laughs) and in the attempt to not cry, I bottled it up so hard, I started like basically hyperventilating and then I was crying anyways, but then I was crying really hard and gasping and being basically hysterical. It was horrifying. It was like watching a car accident. I stormed out of the conference room and went home uh, <laughs> and basically quit. And then they had to talk to me and I had to unquit. And it was the whole thing was a disaster. Fortunately, the two women I worked for were extremely gracious and willing to forgive my complete immaturity. And I've always thought about that and thought in the future, like when the situation where I feel a little urge to cry comes up, in the moment of deciding like, do I stifle this or do I just go with it? I always think about like, do I wanna have a hyperventilating meltdown because I couldn't control it? And the answer is always no, nobody wants to seem that disastrous. So it's generally better to just It's like venting off a little bit of pressure so the explosion doesn't happen. And I always think about that moment and think, like, don't explode. Just vent. (laughs) After hearing Lindsay's story, the way she talks about crying makes a lot of sense. It's her way of venting off a bit of pressure to avoid a bigger and more embarrassing emotional outburst. But one detail stands out. Lindsay said before that many of her colleagues have been older men. The founders in this story were female. Would male colleagues have reacted differently? Like a lot of the women I interviewed, Lindsay's no stranger to receiving odd feedback about personal traits from male colleagues. In the workplace, I think sometimes I can be a bit intimidating because I seem intense. Actually, people have told me that I need to make more small talk to seem more approachable and human. How did it feel when people said that to you? I wasn't surprised. I found it irritating because I feel like I'm not in any way a raging feminist, but I don't suspect there's a lot of situations in which a man would be told he needed to make more small talk to be likable or to soften an intense personality. Veronica's boss was also hung up on her tone of voice. I asked if she thought her manager spoke to her differently because she is a woman. Did you feel like you had been undermined in a way that was specific to your gender? And now when you're saying that, yeah, I felt like that. 
when he said that I'm super emotional and I'm stable, I know that it's said about girls that they are more emotional than men are, but neither me or my friends would say this. Just my boss, and that's strange for me. I put this point to Lindsay, too. How do you think that crying feeds into the gender dynamic in a workplace? I think it reinforces the stereotype that women are weak and emotional and more fallible, which is unfortunate because I think biologically we're predisposed to manifest emotions in a different way than men, and it doesn't make us less. It's just different. Like Biologically, women are different in a lot of ways, and men are different in a lot of ways, and that's just how it is. But crying is seen as weak and emotional and something that should be suppressed. My husband is an executive at a large company and he would rather be lit on fire and thrown off the roof than ever cry and cannot understand how any of his employees would cry at work. It's such a foreign concept to him. And so when I told him that I was doing this podcast, he was like, I mean, he acted like I said, I was going to eat my own toenail. How likely do you think he he would be to speak to me about this topic? (laughs) Oh, man, I can ask. It would be interesting. I'd be curious to hear what he would say. He said no. When you talk to people about crying at work, gender quickly becomes a big part of the conversation. Of the first people who agreed to be interviewed for this podcast, all of them were women and each had at least one crying at work story involving the words or actions of a male manager. Whether or not women are biologically predisposed to cry more than men is not a debate I want to get into. I'm not a neuroscientist. But clearly, the stigma attached to crying at work is different depending on your gender. For women... It feeds into negative stereotypes that they're overly sensitive or emotional. If a woman cries at work, this could be used to undermine them in an unfair and misogynistic way, both at the time and in the future. But for a lot of men, like Lindsay's husband, for example, the consequences of crying at work are almost unthinkable. Surely no man's career could survive such a blow to their masculinity. I say that with obvious sarcasm, at least I hope it's obvious, but also as a man who's never cried at work myself. Maybe I got lucky with the managers and workplaces I've been dealt. Maybe it's because, as a cishet white guy, I'll never experience the intense feelings of injustice and anger caused by casual workplace discrimination. Or maybe I'm just as emotionally stunted and insecure as your average bloke. To be honest, it's probably all three. But I knew other men would be different. So we put a call out on LinkedIn, this time asking for men specifically to tell us their crying at work stories. Surely someone would be man enough to have cried at work and be up for talking about it. God, I mean, I think for some men it would be really tough, you know. But you've survived. I've survived. Yeah, I've survived. (laughs) Meet John, a product manager in the education sector, 
and the first of a number of men who let me record them talking about crying at work. Back in the pandemic, John had a strange reaction to his first vaccine. I developed uh, labyrinthitis for three months, which I'd never heard of before, but it's where you feel it's more than feeling dizzy. It's like feeling completely out of it. Well, almost completely. John isn't the kind of guy who takes illness lying down. I was brought up in a very kind of like working class family. I mean, I was just told to kind of go to school, go to work, no matter what. You know, like it could be dying of the bubonic plague and you just get there. Since his office was closed, getting there just meant dragging himself to the computer. So against his doctor's advice, John kept working as normal and didn't take any time off. For a long time, he couldn't get a clear diagnosis. Between all the appointments and tests, he was getting a bit freaked out. Then one day, after months of working through illness, a mix-up meant he had to attend an important work meeting at the same time as an even more important doctor's appointment. And then I had to phone up my group manager to kind of sort it out about the doctor's appointment and the important meeting that I might have to have a bit of time off for. And that's when I burst into tears. John's pretty sure this is the only time he's ever cried at work. He doesn't cry much. I think I felt kind of pissed off. I thought, oh man, this is a bit out of order. You know, like I've been working really hard, like all the way through the pandemic. You know, a lot of people have, right? You know, and I just need this. And God, you know, it's just coincidence. Like the only time I can get to the doctors is this. And I've got this bloody dizziness thing and it's freaking me right out. And yeah, I think I just felt it was a little bit unfair. You know what I mean? Unfair. That word pops up a lot when talking about crying at work. In every story I heard, people didn't cry because they felt sad. They cried because they felt like they were on the wrong end of an unfair situation. In some cases, nothing changed. The unfairness continued, intensified even. But for John, things worked out differently. Did the person on the other side know that you were crying? Oh yeah, it was really obvious. And I remember I could tell it was coming in my voice. I thought, oh bloody hell, when the voice starts to quiver... And then it came, and that was it. I couldn't stop. How did that person react? Oh, absolutely brilliant. I think, I can't quite remember, but I think she probably did it textbook. I asked John what he meant by textbook. I think it was just kind of like, we will get this sorted. Do not worry about it. Just go to the doctor and then take some time off. Don't come back to the meeting afterwards. That's ridiculous. It was all the stuff that you wanted to hear, really. John compared it to another time he told her about a personal problem. I remember she just sort of put everything to one side for that moment and she was like, okay, let's go and talk about it, you know? Not afraid to share her self-experiences that she'd had. And I just thought at the time, even though she's really busy and she's got a load of stuff on, when the perennial hits the fan, she'll be like, okay, this is important. I need to put all this work aside and we need to go talk about this. Maybe that was in my mind when I, when I spoke to her. And actually, maybe part of me knew I probably can cry in front of this person and it's not going to be an issue. You know, if, if I'd spoken to somebody else, I might have not got to that point or I might have in some way held it back. I didn't feel embarrassed afterwards. No, I felt all right. Yeah, it felt quite good to let it out. And like I said, she dealt with it really well. Maybe if she dealt with it differently, it would have you know, been really awkward. Even with a million other things to do, John's manager stopped 
listened and reacted with empathy. It might not sound like much, but unlike a lot of the people I spoke to for this podcast, John still works at the company to this day. A while later, John called one of his friends. I said, oh, bloody hell, like I cry in front of my, you know, group manager and I can't remember, I probably said, I feel like a right twat. And I remember a friend of mine was like, oh, she said, that's probably had quite a lot of impacts. And she said, especially, she said, you know, you're a man and you're crying in front of your female boss. And she said, that would have made a big old impact, that. And I, I didn't really think of it before, but she seemed to think, you know, me being a man crying to my boss, who was, do you know, she was like, oh yeah, blimey. That's like big. <laughs> it's an awful thing to say, isn't it? All these stereotypes and stuff like that. But I guess generally men don't cry a lot. And oh, I don't know. Yes, yeah, all that nonsense. But you know, men are generally sort of like in the positions of authority and all that. And actually, it was, you know, it was kind of tables returned, right? Actually, no, I'm the man. You're the boss. I'm the one that's crying. You're the one that's going to have to deal with it, you know? I can think back to companies that I've worked in before where it's like, oh my God, that would not have been, I don't know how it would have been received, but yeah, it wouldn't have been the done thing, you know? I wonder if if I was in her position with all this work, I'd have that sort of patience and space to do that with somebody. From the stories we've heard so far, it's hard not to draw conclusions about gender when it comes to crying at work, especially in front of your manager. But it's not always that simple, as we'll find out in the second part of this podcast. When you say don't take it personally, it's like saying be a robot because I'm a person, so I could take things personally, you know. It's like if we had to separate between personal and professional and we are persons going to develop our profession in a working environment, so personal and professional, they go together. At work and in business and business context in general, we tend to overvalue strength over sensitivity. And strength with an immature lens becomes anger. And I get a feeling that as a work culture, we push forward more masculine values, more traditionally masculine values, as opposed to traditionally feminine values, such as sensitivity and tenderness. I would have loved to have opened up to them at this level, but I couldn't. At the time, I just couldn't. The sensation of not being heard, the sensation of speaking literally to a wall, even though there's a human being in front of me, a sensation of wanting to do the best because there are people who are dependent on you. I had reached boiling point, I couldn't take it anymore, and I just succumbed to it. And so that caused me to become emotional in the workplace. had a place I marked on Google Maps as the safe crying place. 
Shayna's more than familiar with crying at work. Not the casual and efficient kind, either. More the, why do I still work here again, kind. Shayna told me more than one crying at work story that shocked me. Each one from a different job, each one ending in tears. There was the time she found out she wasn't being promoted when her manager invited her to what was described as a casual meeting with another potential candidate for the role. Shayna began by asking her a few interview questions, but then the candidate told her that she already had the job and that Shayna now reported to her. And I sent a message on Slack to the recruiter saying, why didn't anyone tell me? This is humiliating. And she sent it straight to my manager who messages me. I'm sure you'll love working with her and for her. This was straight up pure humiliation. I felt like I had been set up. Or there was the time when she was in hospital all night with a kidney infection and ended up having to take a week off to recover. Coincidentally, this was followed by a week of holiday that Shayna had booked ages ago. When she returned, her manager screamed at her for being away for so long. Where I was like, do you want my other kidney? Do you want the uninfected? Like, what, what are we doing here? But there was one story that had my jaw down by my ankles. So my manager would often bring up diet, and she had recently lost 100 pounds. So, you know, what I ate, what she ate, why I was vegan. And it made me really uncomfortable. And this all started the first week that I was in the office. So I asked her at some point to, you know, lay off, just to stop. I wasn't going to engage in those conversations. She said, okay, sure. And she did mostly. And then we had a one-on-one. And I don't know why... But she started talking about weight and how successful women are never above a size four and successful men are attracted to successful women. So you'll see that the thinnest women are dating pilots or married to pilots because pilots are the most successful. But, you know, it kind of goes downhill from there. And the bigger a woman is, the less successful her husband is because you know, he would never go for someone less successful than him. And because there is this direct correlation, she said, between success and weight. And and I'm sitting here like, how do you even define success? But sure. So, like, look at Pierce Brosnan and his fucking fly, beautiful wife, you know, but whatever. Then she starts going one by one through the women in the office who they're dating or married to what size she thinks they wear, and where they're at in their careers. And I was wearing sunglasses because I was taking the call from my my balcony, and it was really sunny. But at this point, I was crying because it was just so mean. It was really mean, and she didn't understand. And I couldn't explain it to her because she was socially like not on the same plane. And I didn't know how I would ever explain it to her. I didn't really know how to respond when Shayna told me this. Shayna didn't at the time either. Later that day, while she was still deciding whether or not to tell HR about it, she had a team meeting. Her manager was there, and she was totally oblivious that she'd done anything wrong. So I go into the team meeting. I was debating whether or not to even go. I went, and my manager was just going woman by woman. And she says, I know that face. I know that face. Who pissed you off today? Who have you spoken to today? Who made you mad? 
am I living in a parallel universe? Oh my God, is it opposite day? Like, what just happened? I found this part about her manager showing concern somehow even more strange. But Shayna says that actually she got on quite well with her manager. Very warm, very friendly relationship. We were politically aligned. Um, she was very kind, always asking about my family. She doesn't understand what's polite, what's impolite, what's kind, what's unkind. She says whatever's on her mind. I cried during, but she didn't see. And then after, and then after I spoke to HR, and then every time I thought about it for the next, like, three days. Did you ever tell her that she was the one who made you cry because of that conversation? No, because I knew it wouldn't, there was no um, self-awareness there. I did, when I left, tell her manager um, when I quit, and nothing really happened. No one was, you know, surprised by it. Having lived through numerous horrible experiences with different managers at different workplaces, crying at work has become a clear signal for Shayna. It usually has helped me realize for myself when it's over, when I should move on. When I cry or when I you know, reach an emotional breaking point, then I realize that it's only going to end when I say it's over. And while we've talked a lot about gender so far, which obviously plays a big role in Shayna's experiences too, the way she's been treated by both male and female managers has led her to a universal conclusion. There has never been a time where I've cried or a superior has made me cry and it has changed them or made them more empathetic. I don't think that generally the people who make someone cry or lead their actions lead someone crying in the workplace are sensitive enough to want to change that situation her feeling this way makes total sense but are there exceptions to the rule Maybe I was I was hoping for for empathy. Oh yeah, that's okay, Tim. That happens, but you know, I didn't even get that. Tim's led marketing teams at a number of startups, but at the time of this first story, he was still a junior marketing manager working at a media company in London. The CEO was a I don't want to say aggressive, but you know, a CEO who wanted a lot from their team members, right? Somebody that uh, would push everybody very very much. Before a team meeting, Tim realised he'd forgotten to add a link to a marketing email. So when the meeting started, he held up his hands and admitted his mistake. I thought that would be like, oh, great, what did you learn from it, kind of thing. And, and you know, and I, I would share my my learnings and stuff like that. And the CEO was like, what was the mistake? You know, and I was like, well, I didn't, I didn't include the link, or, you know. And he's like, what do you mean you didn't include the link? I was like... Well, I, I missed it out. How can you make that mistake? How can that be missed? Are you guys not checking his work? You can guess what happened next. I couldn't hold my tears and, and I cried and I, I had to leave the room actually. And um, 
I went out uh, to take a break. I came back, still had the quite red eyes and you know fluffy kind of eyes and stuff. I think I cried because there was other people around. There was my colleagues, and um, you know the CEO did that kind of discussion in front of a bunch of people. I felt really weak. The environment that was created there in that room made me suddenly, you know, I couldn't handle it. It was really a toxic environment managed by one bad leader. Tim saw stuff like this happening all the time at this company. People would run out of meeting rooms crying or get into shouting matches with each other. New colleagues would come and go with dizzying speed. No one wanted to stick around that type of atmosphere for long, Tim included. I think I've given the best feedback, uh, you know, is is the day that I quit, (laughs) the day that I quit. I did say everything that uh, had to be said, you know, maybe I didn't say it in the best words, I'll be honest. I was very, very junior in my career. I shouted, I screamed, I I swear, but I did also say why, why I taught these things or like, you can't treat your employees like this, you can't treat anybody like this, this should not be acceptable in a company, you're nobody's father here. Yeah, it didn't turn out really well. What, what was the what was the reaction to that? Well, it was a lot a lot of screaming, and it was like, "Yeah, get out now," kind of thing. And um, and I was ready to go out. I cried again when I was quitting. Tim was only at this company for a few months, but it feels like it had a big impact on how he thought about his career. I realized that's definitely not the type of leadership that I, I'd, I'd love to learn from. It gave me a massive drive and I said, you know what, I'm going to be super successful at what I do. Over the next few years, Tim threw himself into his work. He switched to startups and rose through the ranks, eventually becoming head of marketing at a small company in Barcelona. Now he was managing his own team and was developing his own leadership style. Things were going well. Then one day, a junior member of Tim's team took him aside for a chat. This person had a great, 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 great job with us for about a year and a half. And um, this person mentioned that uh, they'll be leaving the company. I was, I was quite sad. I was like, oh, well, that, that's kind of sad. You know, we've, we've had a great relationship for the last year and a half and uh, we've been working really well together and stuff. And I remember um, we had a last marketing meeting on, on that Friday. And, um, you know, I used to do a little bit of celebration at the end, you know, like the week went really well and so on. And we were going to surprise this person with, with a great, you know, goodbye kind of thing uh, in that meeting. As we were going to go into the surprise, this this person gave a speech, you know, I said, oh, please, you know, give us a speech. And this person um, started to tell us what we were really bad at, myself and other team members and how this person didn't like us and how how they had enough at this job and stuff. And they start crying and they start crying big time, but um, being quite um, attacking towards us. Uh, and not just the manager that was me, the head of marketing, but also other colleagues. That was a really bad ending of a job. Tim felt like he had a great relationship with this team member and was really impressed with their work. He didn't want to lose them. But in hindsight, Tim realised that they had a different perspective. 
this person showed such good skills and such amazing performance, right? So then you would kind of want to give more to this person because you know that it would be handled really well, right? And uh, and maybe what I've done and some of my colleagues was like relying too much on this person because this person was amazing at what they did. They were very junior, uh, you know, but very quickly they took on amazing projects and delivered some really good work. So that was a mistake, I, I think, from my side as well. And not to say, okay, don't take m- more because you have a lot in your hands. And I think that this person never said no, you know, um, and this person said, yeah, sure, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. I saw this person as somebody that I was coaching, that I was trying to push in their career and to do better and, and to go get what they want and so on. And I failed. I remember that I felt horrible. I, I felt really, really, really terrible. I think I was angry at first, but I remember coming back home. Uh, it was a Friday evening and, and I came back home and I and I, I did cry to my partner. And, and, and my partner said, hey, what, what happened? Why, 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 why are you crying? Why are you sad? I was like, well, the person that I thought that I was helping, um, I actually didn't help them, apparently. I was very, very sad. And I stayed very sad for about a year because this person never spoke to me again. Tim felt gutted about how things ended with this team member. But apart from that, did he change? I've changed a lot how I do one-on-ones. Now the one-on-ones that I do have nothing to do with performance or me asking you, hey, can you show what you've done? No, it's more about their career, is about their learning, is about their work-life balance, uh, is about their relationship with their colleagues and their managers. And if they want to bring even anything from their personal life, it's also open space uh, for that. That's going really well. We put this pressure on people, that we put this pressure on on tech companies, on startups, on on young companies, on young employees. We've been doing this and we've been promoting this. And the mental health wasn't important, let's be honest. I would have never spoke about this, Simon, a few years ago, I'll be honest, um, you know, because uh, I thought it would be a sign of weakness, um, you know, and now I see it as a sign of strength that I can be transparent. A year later, I was just in bed about going to sleep. You know, I just checked my phone to put my alarm or something like that. And um, this person sent me a voice note. I remember the voice note said, I was uh, in a lot of pressure. Uh, I wasn't well in, 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 in my space with myself, first of all, and in my career, in my work. I took it all on you and, and our team members. It wasn't just our team, actually, but I, I blamed it all on us, on, on, our, on our marketing team back then. I blamed it on you as, as the leader, and I've learned something major in my career, and I even thank you for, for that moment. I was like, oh my God, I'm... I was so happy, and uh, but sad still, you know, because I remember that moment and that year, you know, and I apologized as well. I said, hey, if I if I wasn't able to um, to support you, what your needs, you know, I, I do apologize. Yeah, and this person and I, uh, since uh, we're, we're really like, we're really almost best friends. We're very very close. I think that we both saw each other's truth, you know, and that uh, and that emotions at work is going to happen. We are humans and we are emotional and it should happen. It's okay. That cry, that scream, it was a message for change. Crying at work won't always bring about the change that we want or expect. But as we've just heard, it is a sign that some kind of change has to happen. And as we'll hear in this final story... Sometimes that change comes in the way that we least expect. 
I really saw like everything that I want. Like, you know, when you see your future in a way. A self-confessed late bloomer, Joanne finally felt like everything was falling into place. She'd recently finished a successful internship and had landed her first proper gig at a startup in Spain, an exciting new country for her to explore. She's Dominican, so she already spoke the language too. As far as Joanne was concerned, she'd arrived. I fell in love with the startup world. I learned about, you know, digital marketing and what I wanted to do, etc. I was like, okay, this is this is going to be my life now. <laughs> like shit, this is it. The company was happy to find Joanne, too. While her initial contract was only for three months, they were keen to snap her up and said they'd hire her full-time. And I was like, okay, great. I would love to be full-time, but I'm a student from the United States and I need a visa. And they're like, okay, great, let's, let's sort this out. Joanne admits that back then, as a naive 20-something, she didn't really know much about how getting a visa worked. But the company seems totally chilled. They said they'd handle it. I thought this was being sorted out in the background. What do you do? You just live your life, right? So Joanne carried on working, feeling confident that her visa would be approved soon. Weeks passed, then months. Compared to a friend who was going through a similar process, Joanne's visa seemed to be moving along pretty slowly. As her official final day at the company got closer, she started to feel anxious. Then, when the day arrived, she was invited to a meeting. And like they call me into this little room. In my mind, in my naive mind, I was just like going in there. I'm like, the good news is coming, <laughs> haven't you heard? And a lawyer comes in and they're like, oh yeah, we've been trying to sort out your, your visa. And they were just like, no, we can't. We, like, we've done everything we could and like you have to leave today. They essentially had to terminate me, like, right then. I just remember just, like, like being in total shock and just kind of like, oh, man, don't cry. And it was just, like, one of those things that was just, like, it happened. I wasn't aware that I was crying, but I was crying, if that makes sense. Yeah, it was almost like an out-of-body cry. Yes, an out-of-body cry, that's what it was. Yeah, it was, and I was just... And I was also, of course, very embarrassed. I wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. It's kind of like when someone breaks up with you. You don't want to spend any more time with them. You want to just get out of there immediately. I'm like, okay, great. I kind of want to go well in my heartbreak alone. Looking back, she thinks they could have handled the whole thing way better. But Joanne's tears weren't just about professional heartbreak. She faced personal heartbreak, too. Because at the same time as she was falling in love with startups, she was falling in love with Mark, a local guy from Barcelona. They'd only been seeing each other a couple of months, but she really liked him. With the visa gone, Joanne saw her entire future evaporating in front of her. She did not take it well. I was pretty much in like self, self-destruct mode. Like, you, you know that scene and when you see a movie that there is a, there's this like a very successful woman and what does she do? She serves herself a glass of wine and jugs it down. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do that because that is what women do. Luckily, Mark was around to pick up the pieces. 
at least for now. She still had some time left in Spain. He was like, all right, you got to stop. Whatever this is, you gave yourself a day. And, and remember that Friday, he took that Friday off, Mark, and we went to the, the Museum of Natural Science. Over the next few weeks, they talked a lot about the future. I just remember like a lot of conversations of like, what am I going to do? Like, I really wanted to stay in Barcelona because I had this like great relationship. I was like, where is this going? And there is also this tech industry that I really wanted to explore. We were just kind of like, okay, what are we going to do? And is this for real? Like, are we going to figure it out? It was a life-changing decision with one life-changing solution. So Mark and I decided, ended up decided that, like, why not, like, get married? <laughs> Six months after leaving her dream job in tears, Joanne and Mark were living in Barcelona as husband and wife. That was seven years ago. And we're still married and we're still happy. Very much in love, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I'm kidding. For me at that moment when I got the news and then I found myself just like tears were falling. How I saw it was that it was an inflection point and that my life was going to change. Whether it was go to the left or go to the right, your path will change from here. People see crying at work in all sorts of different ways. A release of emotional pressure. A reaction to unfairness. A sign that they should move on. But one aspect of crying at work is true for everyone. After, things never stay the same. Professional relationships get personal. Lifelong lessons are learned. Toxic bosses are finally left behind. Leaps of faith are taken. Crying at work is a signal that the path will change from here. But exactly how the path changes isn't just up to the people crying. It's also up to the people on the receiving end of that crying. Colleagues, partners, and most of all, managers. So... Next time one of your co-workers' voices starts to crack or quiver in a meeting, think carefully about how you'll respond. Because the way you react in that moment could shape their future. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. Cry if I want to. Cry if I want to. You would cry too if it happened to you. This special episode of Mental Health at Work was written and hosted by myself, Simon Dumont, produced by Billy Cragen, and brought to you by Oliva. Proper mental health support and emotional growth for every single employee. Huge thanks to everyone who shared their crying at work stories with me. You all get a gold star for helping to destigmatize mental health at work. Special thanks to Norsheen Yusuf for helping shape the episode and to Camping Productions for the amazing animation 
which you can watch over on Oliva's LinkedIn page. We're back in two weeks with a regular episode of Mental Health at Work. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all the other usual places. And if you really want to help us beat the podcast search algorithm, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify, preferably positively. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.